Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 5. We'll be there in our study this morning. All right, let me ask you to stand today, if you will. We'll get right to our reading. I'm going to read a number of verses this morning. We're trying to take things in context um, and preach big contextual thoughts as we work right through the book of Acts. We're not going to get bogged down. And there's a lot of preaching verses in here topically, but I really do want to take the big thoughts. So we're going to read from chapter 5, verse 12, all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse number 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes. They don't even try to give a number here. They just use the word multitudes, both of men and women. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about in Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Then the high priest rose up. And this is not the first time. And they rose up and all that were with him, which were in the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all these words of life. So the place you're just arrested, go right back there and start doing what you're doing once again. And when they heard that, they entered to the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the sin of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, and returned, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now, when the high priest, the captains of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted them whereunto this would grow. Talking about the movement, Christianity. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers, this is the third time, and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest and asked them, saying, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? They won't even say the name of Jesus. This is how bad these guys are. In that name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, I don't want that phrase to get lost on us today. These people, and this is not hyperbole, had filled Jerusalem with the doctrine and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a real thing. They had done that as a young church. And so they see this and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. Then Peter and the, and the apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And so Peter sees this as another opportunity to preach. Whom you slew and hanged on a tree, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and a savior for receive to for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we, and we are His witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. And when they heard that, you know, what's that? Well, not just the preaching of the gospel, but they were to blame for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This was a repeated claim by Peter over and over that you men are responsible for the death of Christ. And there's a reason he did that, by the way, real quickly, is because he, he's argued from the Old Testament that the stone the builders reject would become the chief of the corner. Amen. So he's saying, he's not trying to be necessarily unkind to them, but he's saying this is biblical, this is scriptural. What I'm teaching is from the Old Testament. So when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. This stood there up when the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. So he gave them some space and he said, guys, let's talk. And he said to them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves and what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before those days or these days rose up Athutus, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain, and all and as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. And after this man rose up Judas in Galilee in the days of taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So using this logic, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or, or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, this would have been a scourging, no, no minor beating, but a scourging, and had beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And they continued daily in the temple and in every house. They ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this morning, Lord, for the music that has been encouragement to us, for the truth, the doctrine of it. And now, Lord, we look into your word as a church family. We ask for help here. And Lord, this, this phrase, we ought to obey God rather than man, Lord, that has application in our lives this morning. Because there is a command that you have given us as individuals that we ought to obey, and not even preferring ourselves over that command. And so I'm going to ask for your help with these thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing for such a length of time. Before we consider our text this morning, I want to place this story in the larger context we have been studying in the book of Acts. In the opening pages of the book, Jesus meets with his followers for the last time. He's already been resurrected, and he commissions them once again to be witnesses of him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And as Jesus ascends, this is a few days later, the Holy Spirit descends and empowers the disciples and all those gathered there to be witnesses and commands them once again to do what the Lord Jesus Christ had instructed, and that was to be witnesses unto Christ. From that moment, the early church launched into action. They just didn't hold this doctrine. They just didn't know this truth, but they practiced this truth. They gave their life to the uh, missionary endeavor of spreading the gospel to other peoples. They were sharers of the good news. And for a time, 
God demonstrated His approval upon their actions by further empowering them to do greater and greater works, to do signs and miracles validating uh, His approval upon their actions. On one occasion, as Peter and John, and I'm assuming a group of other disciples, were making their way to their temple, Peter's eyes fell upon a lame man born that way from birth with a congenital defect that kept him from walking. And Peter said to that man, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, and that is the gospel, that truth, I give unto thee. And instantaneously the man was healed, and he leapt up and rejoiced, praising God. And of course, as you can imagine, people knowing this man gathered together in a great multitude in amazement and wonder at what God had done. Peter, as he has in our text and in previous text, used the opportunity to uh, launch the gospel, to preach out the gospel to these people. And the Bible tells us that 5,000 minimally men and others were saved on that occasion. Because of the uproar of this event and the preaching, these men were soon arrested by the jealous religious leadership in Israel, specifically Jerusalem. And they were aggravated. These men were preaching in the name of Jesus and they were accusing them of being his murderer. Well, they, they took up the men and they released them after threatening. And this is a previous story. But the men, despite the threatening, continued to preach nevertheless. They would not be deterred. They would be not taken off course. Despite the threatenings and disapproval of men who could have taken their lives, this band of disciples, now 5,000 and growing, were preaching the gospel. Commentary is given about the unity of this early church, and we talked a little bit about that in the last weeks. And then came a parenthetical section. It's, it, it's this fancy word we give to kind of an interlude, a thought that is interrupted by another thought, then we go back to the old, the old thought. And that parenthetical section um, was about the spirit of the church. And we were just told the church was doing great but then all of a sudden there's this section where a threat is identified. And the spirit of selfishness is demonstrated by a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they had sold some land but lied about the amount given. They were looking for the same approval that the people had given to Barnabas for his gift. But in reality they were, they were frauding the people and what they were doing. And they were just looking for the acclaim of men not to honor God and be a help to people. Well, that kind of selfishness in a church, that kind of self-serving action, that kind of attitude that puts self before others, God had, did not want to have any part in the local church, and that couple paid for that sin with their lives. And so the text continues then in the verses that we're getting back to after that great event. And you can imagine people heard about this, and that's why the, the text states people were fearful. Like, wow, these people are serious believers and, and God is working and, and if you have sin in your life, you know, you might die. And, and that was the reality in this early church. But the text we're reading today gets us back to the priority of the church, being of one spirit and having power. And so again, stated in verse 12, we're getting back to where they left off, the threat now having been removed to unity and the ability for the Holy Spirit to work in the group. Signs and wonders are once again done by the apostles or the disciples. And, and so, these, and this is important, these miracles, which involved, we see in the text, healing of people, among others, was done in the context of sharing the gospel and just doing good to people. Being and showing kindness 
to these who are lost that they hope to see saved. Well, these miracles and this kindness, this love for people, drew large crowds around the disciples. It drew multitudes, the Bible tells us in verse 16. And the Bible states that many were healed. These people were so hopeful and excited. They, they literally took people who, who had palsy or sickness who, who couldn't get up and laid them in beds along the street, hoping that Peter's shadow may come by. And they believed that, that maybe even the shadow of people, uh, Peter, because the God was so working in them, might heal them. And the Bible doesn't say that Peter's shadow healed anybody. Their faith may have brought that about. And God may have done that for them. I don't know. But regardless, one way or the other, multitudes of people were helped and found healing. But not only were people healed in verse uh, number 28, this is important, but this group of believers were filling Jerusalem with the preaching of Christ. Okay. So I'm going to contend it wasn't for the miracles they were performing that got them arrested a second time, it's for what they were saying. And so at every opportunity someone was healed, a crowd would gather, and the gospel be preached, and people would be saved. A miracle was done, people would gather, the gospel be proclaimed, and, and people were saved. And they were going, the Bible says, literally house to house, sharing their faith, the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sins of humanity, was resurrected again, and He was the, the propitiation, He was the means through which man must be saved. They filled Jerusalem, the Bible says. I, I just, that just is, uh, it's what God told them to do. To be witnesses first in Jerusalem, and they were doing this. And so they were arrested for this once again. And, of course, in this preaching, Peter's continuing to say that the religious establishment, you know, is part of the problem. And um, going back to the Old Testament Scripture for that. And so it was for their witnessing and not for the miracle working that all the disciples were arrested this second time. But this is, you know, it's humorous to me. The Sadducees were a curious group. They were more political than religious, but they held religious power. They really didn't believe in anything. They were lackeys to Rome. Um, they were what we might call the most spiritually liberals of their day. They didn't believe in angels. And so there's irony here for me because they didn't believe in angels. They arrested these men and then an angel releases the guys from prison. So, again, I'm weird and things that make me laugh are, are weird, but I, I thought that was funny. Uh, I think maybe that made God smile. I'm not sure. But God sends an angel to release the disciples from prison. And then they're told, now go back and do what you were doing that got you arrested. And they did. They went right back there once again. God released them not to keep them from imprisonment or harm. God released them so they could continue the task that He gave them. Are you with me on that? He wasn't releasing them to keep them from harm. They would all find harm in time. He released them to get them back to the task that he had commissioned them to do. And they, they did. So the Sadducees and other religious leaders found that they had escaped. And so they go back now and find them in the temple a third time. 
and they're not going to touch him this time. Like such crowds are, are around them and the people were, were excited about what they were doing and saying they didn't want to risk stoning themselves. So they asked the guys, you know, would you come with us? And, and the disciples agreed. And they placed them on trial again. And uh, get ahead of myself, they eventually had them flogged. But in the trial, Peter, answering the charges of the Pharisees and Sadducees now combined together about, we told you not to preach in this name. What Peter does here is fascinating to me. He made no attempt to secure their release. He didn't argue, as Paul maybe would later, that he was a Roman citizen and, you know, he, there were some things that could be afforded them. He doesn't do any of that. He simply says in verse 24, we have to obey God rather than men. Okay? Now, we've all heard this verse quoted, haven't we? Okay. And it, it, it's a great truth. Now, the, our application of it sometimes may be way too broad. Because in context, what's he saying? Well, what was he to obey God in? Well, we ought to obey God rather than men in sharing the gospel is what that's about. It's not a political statement. It has nothing to do with politics, as a matter of fact. These weren't even politicians. These were religious leaders. What he was saying is this, God gave us a command and we can't help but speak because God told us to. If I, we're going to obey a command, it's not going to be a command of yours if it's contrary to what God has commanded. And what God has commanded that we should obey is that we have to be obedient to the declaration of the gospel. So when we say, amen, we ought to obey God rather than man, then you are committing yourselves to be a preacher, a proclaimer, a sharer of the gospel. And I'm not going to have time for this, but I would say to you, if there's a man that you ought to not obey, it may be the man right here. Unless, of course, you are, in fact, being a witness and showing preference to that man over what God has told us to do. So contextually, this verse is a reference to the Great Commission, that they could not be silenced when God had told them to speak. Peter reminds them yet again that they were fighting against God and that forbidding them to speak was wrong and that their crucifixion, uh, cruci uh, crucifying the Lord was wrong. And for that answer of Peter, they determined to slay the disciples. You, you're going you're to die for this. But providentially, Israel's most famous and beloved rabbi, Gamaliel, who, by the way, uh, his most famous student was the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 35, okay, before we slay these guys, you guys need to think about this. You need to take heed to what you do. And he makes a case of pragmatism and of pharisaical doctrine, which believes strongly in the sovereignty of God. And this, it's, it's not a principle that we can take further than that. This was a principle of the sovereignty of God. And we say this, if God is for these men, there's nothing that you can do that will stop it. He's not saying those things which can succeed are of God. That's too broad a statement. There's cults and false religions that succeed in the world's eyes. He's saying this, when I talk about Jehovah God, if he's behind it, it cannot be thwarted. And he was right about that, by the way. Verse 38, 39, if God is with them, uh, then you cannot stop them even with these men's death. So again, it wasn't a universal principle. It was a theological principle applied in that context. So reluctantly, the larger council conceded and they beat them. They threatened them. 
and they had no recourse but to release them again. And in this final verse, they rejoiced. Okay, look up here. And they continued doing what they had been doing the previous three times. And that is the theme of the chapter. Continuing the mission, the purpose of the church, triumphing with the gospel over every obstacle. They were doing what they had been called to do. And that's what I'm going to spend the remainder of my time talking about. Okay, now I need you guys to lean in and listen a little bit. Okay, this, this, this is going to come to some big, you know, personal appeal point. I just need you to, I need you to, first of all, intellectually get this, and then I need us to do it. I think most of us could agree with this truth. The perennial problem of the church today, and I would not exclude Eastland Baptist Church from this, is a lack of focus on keeping the main task of the church the main thing that we do. Okay? I'd like for all of us to agree on that point a little more. There, there's this perennial problem, especially in contemporary Christianity. I, I don't know if I can say this for previous centuries, but I think there's a perennial problem in contemporary Christianity, at least Western Christianity, is that we struggle keeping the main thing the main thing. Our focus can, can get blurred and enlarged on a lot of good things, a lot of maybe even necessary things, but they are not the main thing that we've been called to do. Today, as in many other generations, what we are to do, if, if not brought under real intellectual scrutiny, practically and pragmatically sometimes gets lost. Okay, let me give you some examples. Many people think church is about social crusade. They think it's about social crusade. They, they, they use these elements of salt and light and not incorrectly, and think we are to be change agents in this world. What has been wrong, we are to set right. That we are to be the agency of social justice in an unjust world. That we should give time and offering and money and priority to feeding the poor, creating homeless shelters, to building orphanages, to distributing food, and to speaking out on social inequities. And that's what many churches give the majority of their time to. Other churches would argue that we ought to be a political force, uh, like a previous generation's moral majority, that we have a responsibility as, a, as Christians to, to vote our conscience and, and, and to be uh, behind certain political candidates and give time and energy there, that we should mobilize our mor morality for political ends. Others view the church as a place of communal gathering. Uh, I would say it negatively here a little bit, a social club, a place for children to have programs, for them to be entertained, a place where men and women can assemble together, a place for making friendships and finding reprieve from the world in a fragmented culture. Still others think that the church should be a place like a school where we come and we take notes and we get spiritually educated so we will know more of the truths of the Word of God. And, and then we have behaviors and standards and conducts that we conform to. And, and that's what we're to do here as an assembly. And then I can press further and say, well, a church is a place where to come and worship God. And so churches give this enormous amount of attention to finding ways to touch your heart, to lift your hands. And, and I don't mean any of that disparagingly, but they give their time to these things. Okay, stop. Now look up here. 
I'm not disparaging any of those. Not one of them. We're supposed to help the poor. Are we not? And God says he's going to hold us in account if we don't. Like we can't live in this rich, affluent culture and pretend like there are not people out there that are hurting. That's irresponsible and that is not Christian. I think there is a degree of irresponsibility for it. As citizens of the United States, that we wouldn't cast our votes for things that we think are better or moral or just. That's just being responsible. Fellowship is a biblical idea. Building friendships here with each other is super important, guys. We encourage that here. Fellowship is something that we spend time and effort on. We ought to grow as students of the Word of God. We are in this book far too little for the time we spend in a wicked world to counterbalance its effects. We should be better students. That's part of being a disciple. And praising God is something we should not just do on Sundays, but Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday too. I'm not disparaging any of those. But here's why I am saying. It is wrong for us to do those things to the exclusion of the main thing. And that is honoring God by being obedient to His last wishes, and that is to be witnesses in this world. So if you're going to vote, go vote. If you're going to make friends, I encourage you to do it. If you're going to help the poor, you should. But God forbid we do all those things and can't pass out a track. Okay, look here. Lots of people can help the poor. You guys with me? And some of them do it better than we do. And that's a shame, but it's the truth. They can. You can help the poor. A lot of people can give them money. Lots of people engage in fellowship. I don't mean unkind. Catholics and Mormons vote. What, what, what do we have that other groups don't have. What can we give? What can we do? What can change the internal destiny of a soul? It's the gospel. Matter of fact, the five things I listed are all going to continue in some better way in heaven. The one thing you can't do in heaven is win someone to Christ. And so we give our time and our money and our attention to programs and all these things, and I'm not against them. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to drill down to some reality, a reality check for us. We can think ourselves doing a good job, and in so many ways we are. But I am, as the pastor of Eastland Baptist Church, I am telling you we're not doing a great job here. I would say this, we can do better. Daniel and I cheerlead the teachers every week. Hey, inter- encourage your classes to pass out. Okay, pass out tracks. That's an invitation to church. It's not sharing the gospel. Those are not even the same thing. Those who have miracle working power, slow the clock down so I can finish on time. <laughs> it is our job 
to seek and to save that which was lost, to give ourselves to that which Jesus gave himself for. Our mission is to continue the work that Jesus begun to reconcile the world to God through him, Christ. The task, this task is singular, and it can only be done while we're breathing, while we're here. Heaven will be just. There will be no poor. We will enjoy endless fellowship and endless praise and worship. But no one there can be saved because they already are. The early church knew this and they kept this great commission with everything they had. And by the way, in keeping that commission, and I, I talked about this last week, in doing this main thing and coming together in common cause, which has so much power, it knit their hearts together. It gave them great joy. It gave them great fellowship. It gave them reason to praise God that was real and genuine. Evangelism and witnessing, sharing our faith was their main concern. This is what they lived for. It's what they rejoiced over when they were arrested for doing it. When arrested, they went right back to that task. Everything else was a byproduct. All these men would die for their witness. They, they didn't die because they said they were Christians. They died because they were witnessing as Christians. They didn't die for moral good. They didn't die for, to worship and praise. They didn't die for being students. They didn't die for correcting social injustice. They died for the declaration of the gospel. And that alone. This is where they took their ultimate stand. They couldn't help speaking on this issue. They felt a compulsion. It was on this issue that we have to obey God rather than men. Okay, <clears throat> so here's my simple exhortation. <clears throat> we should give our lives to this too. This has got to be the brightest and broadest fabric in the garment of Eastland Baptist Church. I'm not going to speak about Christianity out there. It's not my concern. This is our concern. We can't allow other things to take the priority of this primary mission. Now, everyone in this room, say maybe a few, are going to be indicted on this litmus test. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you shared your faith? When you told someone that Jesus Christ was the provision for their sins, and it was only through His name and His work on the cross they could be saved. When's the last time you said words like those to another human being? Studies show, <clears throat> this is called Lifeway Research Group, 60% of Christians haven't told another person how to be saved in the last year. The majority of Christians in the past six months have not shared the, the good news that Jesus paid for our sins and through His death on the cross and resurrection can bring new life and, and eternal salvation. They found that <clears throat> over 50% of Christians haven't done this in their lifetime. They further found the vast majority of Christians don't pray for the opportunity to do that. It's not part of their prayer life. They pray for things and needs, but not for opportunities to witness. <laughs> 95% of Christians have never led another person to Christ. 80% do not participate in evangelistic opportunities. 
of their local church. 75% of Christians do not give towards the Great Commission or missionary endeavors. 89% of churches have no organized platform for outreach. In a recent Barna survey on faith sharing experiences, historically 95 to 90% of Christians believe evangelism was the priority of the church. Now, I, I just got to stop here. Historically, 95 to 97% of Christians believe that evangelism was important. I don't know where the other 2 or 3 percent are at, but they believe that was the ultimate priority of the church. Okay, I'm not picking on a group here today. I'm really not. This is the, the information. Almost 50% of millennials and younger groups believe that sharing of our faith shouldn't be done because it offends people. Welcome to politically correct, correct culture. Like gone crazy. 27% of Gen X believe it's wrong to share your faith. 20% of boomers believe it's wrong to share your faith. 20% of the elders, that's people older than me. believes because of cultural sensitivity and the political climate that we should not share our faith. Whatever happened, it's better to obey God than man. Take that to the political campaign if you want to. I'm talking about it in this context. Seventy percent of all Christians today, I'm talking about in America, believe that offending people with the truth is wrong. Now, I'm not talking about being offensive, because there's that foolishness, and I'm not talking about that foolishness. I'm talking about if, I, if what I'm going to say is going to offend you because it's exclusive and it's true and you disagree with me, then I'm not going to do that because i got to respect that. Hey, guys, that's not Christian or biblical. And that's what my point is. I just want to make sure you understand that. I'll make sure you, under, you young people understand it's not wrong to share your faith, even if it offends them. It's okay. Don't go looking to be offensive. We do that too easily anyway. And that's been a major problem in our movement for a lot of years, but that's not the point. I want to say to you, all beliefs are not equal. They're not all scriptural. They not all carry equal weight. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There's such a thing as a truth and a lie. And we need to believe and accept that as it relates to the gospel. I want to, I want to, <clears throat> the early church was pure. Larger contextual study. They got the sin of Ananias and Sapphira out. The, 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 one of the reasons they, they, they were able to effectively share the gospel is because they did it in purity. They also shared the, go the gospel in power. What do I mean by power? Not just the power of the Holy Spirit, but Christian people rolled up their sleeves and they walked out in the street and they talked to that sinner and that sinner and that sinner and that sinner and that sinner. And they did stand up there dressed a certain way and avoiding TV and a thousand evils. And I'm not disparaging that. I'm just saying we get so off base here. They got down in the ditch and got a little dirty and they did it every single day. That's power. You see, when a church is pure but doesn't have any power, I don't want to discourage you, forgive the grammar, ain't no one interested in that. That's just a fish tank. 
And when people get out here and, and just power, and there's people who are better at this, and they just get out here in the nitty gritty, but they don't deal with their sin. And they're not holy. And they don't give themselves to conform themselves to the image of Christ. People look at that and say, well, that's just a bunch of hypocrisy. They may have better hearts than us in some ways, but that's not going to last either. Having my eyeballs on some contemporary Christian movements that fade like a day in the night. But when you put purity and power together, when you have people who have a real... They want to repent of their sins and get right with God. And then they're going to go out here and talk to sinners, not avoid them. That's how multitudes were saved. And that's a whole separate lesson. I've got to stop. I'm just reading this text, and I'm measuring Eastland Baptist Church against it. Okay, church family, can we do better? Should we do better? Do you believe we ought to obey God rather than men? Is God bigger than our sensitivities? Is God bigger than the political climate? Okay, look at me. Then do it. Okay. Don't, don't say amen in here and talk to no man out there. Hey, I, I okay, we all, let's just be real. It's difficult, it's hard, no one wants to be rebuffed perceived as weird. Okay. If you're a Christian, you're already weird. You're already weird. And don't wear it on your sleeve. And don't be odd and curious. Don't be worldly weird. But to be weird for Jesus is okay. You got to be bigger than, you got to be bigger than the man inside. Because we're serving the God of heaven. And it's real. It's eternal. People go to hell when they don't hear the gospel. I just want to persuade you of it. I want to say it to you over and over. It's okay if people are offended when you're doing the right thing with the right heart. When you're doing the right thing with the right heart. In fact, everyone who would live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer some measure of contribution. Hey, let's just do this. If this week we try and someone rebuffs us, rebuffs us in a small way, we can rejoice like Peter and John and them did. Hey, we tried and got rebuffed for it. We're doing something right. Okay? I'm not asking anyone here to go up and be offensive and overly aggressive. I'm simply saying the most important thing we can do as a church is tell people about the Savior who saved us. Okay, let me ask you to stand.